All right. This is a conversation with Brian Clayton, the co-founder of Your Green Pal. We had an interesting conversation about setting up a double-sided marketplace in the past. So if you haven't seen that yet, go listen to it now. So in this conversation, we're going to talk a little bit more about your psychology and how you run your business and these kinds of things. So uh, why don't you tell everyone a little bit more about your Green Pal, and then we'll get into the questions. So CEO and co-founder of Green Pal. Green Pal is an online marketplace that connects homeowners with lawn care professionals. So if you're needing to get your grass cut rather than calling around on Craigslist or Facebook or something, you just download Green Pal, pop your address in, you'll get quotes, and you can hire somebody to cut your grass for you in a matter of minutes rather than hours or days. GreenPal is a 10-year overnight success nationwide in the United States. Several hundred thousand people using the app to get their grass cut and uh, still growing, still growing 40, 50% every year. So I think the last time we spoke, you said that you were on track to do 20 million. And I think that was for last year, right? That's right. Yeah, we passed that. And now we're closing in on 30. So we're still growing fast. And uh, that's the main metric that we kind of measure success by is GMV, how much how much revenue we're pumping through the platform, how many people are using the app on a weekly basis to get grass cutting services, and also how fast lawn care services are growing their service on top of our platform. So just for clarity, you expect to do 30 million this year? We're closing in on our end of our season. So we've already surpassed that. So we did $30 million this year. And last year we did 20. So we're, we're growing like, like wildfire. That's incredible. Uh, okay, good. So what makes you excited about the double-sided marketplace type of platform, specifically the uh, landscaping? Uh, I think when you're building a marketplace like this, authenticity can be a competitive advantage. I actually spent 15 years in the landscaping business before starting Greenpalace. So I started mowing grass in high school as a way to make extra cash and little by little, grew it into a real landscaping business um, all through high school, all through college. And when I graduated college, I had to make a little business plan and, and ended up building one of the largest landscaping companies in the Southeastern United States. In 2013, I sold that business. It was acquired by a national landscaping company. And so growing that thing from just me and a push mower to 150 trucks going out every day, I learned a lot about the landscaping industry, how it worked from the inside out. And when I sold that business, I got bored and thought, well, what am I going to do now? Uh, I need another mission. I need another project. And I had this idea for GreenPow. I thought, well, somebody's going to build an app to make it just as easy as pushing a button on your phone to order lawn care services. It might as well be me. And so I was excited about the idea, excited about, uh, about leading a team to build this marketplace, build this app. But it was kind of naivete as an asset. I didn't really understand how difficult it was to bring a new product to market. I certainly didn't understand the dynamics of, of a marketplace and, and how to get a marketplace going. So I had the idea, I had the, the domain expertise, but I didn't, didn't really know any of the other stuff. And uh, that became really evident um, in the first year, just, just really kind of uncovering how difficult it is to build a marketplace between buyers and sellers and and, and, and balancing kind of the desires of both sides of the transaction and, and delivering a marketplace that makes it easier to transact than, uh, than otherwise. And so that took a long, long time for us to figure out, probably four years actually, to figure out um, how, to, how, to, how to build a product experience, how to build a marketplace that 
that uh, solves the problems for both sides of the transaction. And so, and so after we got it figured out, started picking up some steam and some momentum, then it got to be fun. And so that's kind of what excites me about running a marketplace business today is that once you get it rolling and get it figured out and get the flywheel humming, it, uh, it becomes a pretty defensible business. It becomes a, a pretty stable business. It never gets easier, but it becomes one that, uh, that gets more fun to, to run and operate and innovate on. And so that's, that's what excites me about running a marketplace business today. Looking back, you know, like my first company, uh, you know, was more of like uh, being a construction worker. You know, you just you just build a business over and over again. You just build it better and better and better, built stronger. Building a marketplace business, particularly a technology business, is more like being a gardener. You're kind of like cultivating uh, parts of the product. You're you're tinkering with things. You're trying to figure out what works, what doesn't work. You're experimenting, and there is no like set roadmap on how to get from point A to point B. And and uh, that's what makes it hard and challenging. But you know that's what makes it valuable and durable. You said the word hard. What's the hardest thing you've had to do in growing this company? Several hard things. One, um, you know, in terms of managing your own personal psychology, it was very humbling, very humbling starting this business. And I think, I think that holds a lot of founders up uh, that you, you're going to be doing very, very small remedial humbling things in the early days. So rewind 10 years ago when I started this business, I just sold a, a $10 million landscaping company with 150 employees, 100, 100 some odd vehicles and trucks going out every day. It was a big business. And then when I, when I sold the business, I had to start all over again and, and build, build this app and beg people to use my crappy app uh, to order a $27 lawn mowing, like beg um, and just like plead with friends and family to use this thing so what, to help us figure it out. And so that was very humbling. Um, that was a, that was a challenging thing that I didn't anticipate. And I think that holds a lot of founders up, but they want to like skip that part of the, of the, of the journey, you know, maybe, maybe like that level of the game and they want to go do the big fun stuff. Maybe they want to like code up a big website or code up a big platform and, and skip the part of the hand to hand combat of your first dozen or, hundred customers. And so that was a, a humbling thing that uh, it was a challenging thing that I didn't anticipate. The other thing that was challenging that I didn't, didn't really understand until I got into it was it's, there's a big difference between running a, a, a small business or a big business um, versus inventing a brand new product from scratch that does not yet exist in the world. Those are two very different things. And I didn't really understand that until I kind of got into the into the weeds of it and, and, and figured out that, you know, there is no roadmap for what we're doing. We're just going to have to try and fail, try and fail and, and iterate our way to something that works and go from failure to failure without any sort of loss of enthusiasm. That was something that, that caught me by surprise. And, and as you work through your levels of, of the game, metaphorically, you know, there's a new final boss at the end of every level and that you have to kind of like a new dragon you have to slay. And what's held me up at times is I'm worried about levels six, seven, and eight things when I'm level when I'm really on levels one, two, or three. That's that that's something that that a, a, a challenge that I've had to overcome. Um, just focus on what level I'm at, and just get through that level, and let's get to the next level. Um, so yeah, a lot of, a lot of different challenges, particularly around inventing a new product, um, creating a product experience that people 
want to use that solves a real problem. These things sound simple, but they're but they're quite challenging. Yeah, of course. I know I'm dealing with them all myself right now as well. Uh, you said that it was a lot of trial and error. I'm curious, what was the most expensive decision you made? Whether that was something you spent money on and it didn't work out the way you wanted, or it's something you could have spent money on and didn't, and you realize later that you should have. A lot of big mistakes. Uh, first, right out the gate, we made a big mistake. Uh, had two co-founders, still do great, great co-founders got really lucky. Uh, but there was, you know, ideally when you're building a tech product, you get a hacker and a hustler together, you know, somebody who drives the business forward, who's good at sales and who's organized, who's got, maybe got a little bit of leadership, a little bit of management skills. And then you get a hacker somebody who's good at the technical side of it, that, that understands how to code, how to bring a piece of technology to market. And those two forces come together and you start this new, new product. Well, we didn't have that. We had three hustlers, you know, with three three business guys, and and while we were all sufficiently motivated to see this thing ex- exist and be successful, none of us knew the tech side. So we believed all we had to do was just pay a development shop to build what we thought Green Pal should be, and then we would be off and going. And so we did that, and we spent like 150 grand of our own cash. Uh, paying this dev shop to build what we thought the product should be. And that took like a year and we released it and tried to hustle up some people to use it. And it was a total like dead on arrival failure. It didn't have the features it needed. And it just had a million things wrong with it. And like looking back, like that was foolish to think that we were going to be in the tech business without any tech acumen, without the ability to develop software inside the team. It's kind of like looking back as silly as maybe starting a restaurant with no chef you know, and no idea on how to cook or develop any recipes. Well, that's kind of how silly it was for us. And so we had to take then another year, teach ourselves how to code, teach ourselves how to build software, and then like rebuild the whole thing from scratch. So we almost started like two years behind day one. And that was really tough. Um, We had to manage our own psychology going through that and celebrate like little tiny, small wins we got like 20 customers our first year and they would use the product as terrible as it was. They would use it and tell us everywhere it sucked. And then we would use that feedback to, to develop the second version. So that was a, that was a bet that we made early on. That was the wrong bet that almost sunk the company. Um, other bets that we made, you know, usually fell in line with that same theme of try trying to, to delegate something that we didn't have any core competency around. Uh, and that usually pretty much always fails. And so it could be, you know, when we were trying to figure out what our growth flywheel was, you know, we were, we would just pay a, pay an agency to go run a Facebook campaign for us and wonder why that didn't work. And it wasn't until we ran a Facebook campaign, did our own creative, took classes on copywriting, uh, did ran the campaign ourselves, did the A/B testing ourselves, and got pretty good at it. And then we could delegate tasks to specialists that we were able to then get Facebook unlocked as a channel. So usually, when we when we tried to delegate something too quickly without some 80/20 acumen around it, um, it usually always blew up in our face. And so I don't know; it's still a lesson I still learn to this day. <laughs> but I like to share it so people can maybe learn from my mistakes. I made a lot of similar mistakes. Although one thing that I had in my favor was that my first hire was a tech guy, who happened to be an architect and like a technical, uh, an, an, a technical architect, 
and happened to know exactly the languages that we needed to do it. I was very lucky because I had no idea what I was looking for. And I just happened to find like the right guy to do it. But then he, yeah, but, but then he looked at me to provide him with a roadmap and a vision and wireframes, UI, UX design, feature specifications. And I'm like, what's that? So like I had to go out and learn, I, I had to learn and it sucked and I had to throw away everything that I provided multiple times, but every time I got better at it and, and eventually we could afford to hire a product manager who really was like, oh my God, you fucked up so bad. Like, let me just fix this up. But yeah, eventually I had to just let, let go control of everything related to the product and project management in order to make sure that my team didn't want to kill me or themselves. But I tried. I, I tried and that's what matters. But I I think that's the that's the difference between a, a generalist and a specialist. Like I'm good ish at a lot of things, but I'm not great at anything. So like I'm sure you guys spend a year teaching yourselves to code, and you're probably not great coders. You're probably barely good, but you were good enough to get something launched. So then you could afford to then hire people to make it better. That was what we had to do at that stage of the game was become really in retrospect, you know, compared to the people that work for the company today, terrible coders, trash, trashy code, buggy code, barely worked. But that's what we had to do at level metaphorically level two to get to level three, where we could make our first 10 grand a month to where we could then hire some development hours. And, um, and, you know, it's kind of like you mentioned being a generalist. You know, one of my, one of my favorite video games growing up was Super Mario Kart. And in that, in that game, you've got like six different drivers you can choose. And every one of them is really good at one thing. Like, like Bowser has the highest top end. Toad is really good at handling. Uh, Princess was really good at acceleration off the line. And then you had Mario who was like half ass at all of these things. And, you know, as it turns out, like he wasn't the best driver in the game for every course. But if you were just getting started, like learning how to play the game, that was the best driver for you to choose. And so I think like in startup land and starting a business, it pays to be Mario. You know, if you got to jump in there and write some copy, if you need to be writing a blog post every day, if you need to be doing like 100 uh, journalist outreach uh, pitches uh, a day or a week, if you've got to write some HTML and some JavaScript, um, if you've got to do some product design and some wireframing, you know, like you need to be pretty good at about 20 different things to go from level one to two. And that's where, you know, 95% of startups don't get to level two. You know, they don't build a product that makes more than, you know, a thousand or two thousand dollars, if that. And so I think you got to be Mario to, to do all of those things yourself. And then you can build out a team around you because you've gotten your hands dirty on all of that stuff. So I'm curious, have you ever regretted starting this business? No, never once um, in, in both businesses. So I've got 20, you know, 22 years uh, kind of in one industry. You know, I, I ran a big landscaping company and now I'm running a platform that kind of makes the whole industry run smoother. I've never regretted it. Um, and, and particularly with the second business, there were a lot of hard years. Um, you know, like they say, the days are long and the, uh, what's the, how's the quick, the, the days are slow and the years are, are short. Like, like, like the years just go by like that, but the days were grueling. And so there were many like gut check moments and, 
and, you know, days, you know, like I would get up at seven and wouldn't be, wouldn't be back, back home until 10 or 11, you know, for like years. And there would be many like moments where you're like, man, this sucks. But um, I made a commitment to myself that by default, I was going to be working on my best idea, no matter what. So I was always going to be working on whatever the best idea I had. And I guess, fortunately, I'm not like terribly creative. I've had one good idea in a decade. And it's this, it's, it's like, this is what I know. I know the future is people want to just get stuff done by pushing a button. I'm going to build that and make that happen with a team. And, and so there was never like, oh, should I do this other thing or chase this other opportunity or because like, no, this is the only idea you have. And this is the only idea that, you know, is authentic to what you know. So just keep grinding on this same idea until you figure it out. Have you ever thought about stopping this business, whether that's walking away, shutting down or selling? For me, you know, it's like you got to be honest about what your skill sets are and, and what your, uh, you know, every business grows to the limitations of, of its CEO or founder. And so you have to be cognizant of that. And so I, I try to be cognizant of that. Like, am I, am, am I not growing alongside the clip of the business? And I, am I no longer the person suited to be leading it? I think every, every startup, every, every new company goes through three phases, the startup, which is just trying to get something working, something that people like to use the grow up phase, which is like maybe going from like 500 K to a million or three or 4 million. And then the scale up phase, which is like 10 million and beyond 20, 30, 40, 50 million, hundred million, nine figures. And maybe different people have different kind of goalposts for, for these phases, but there's a startup grow up and scale up. I, I I've done the first two twice now and I'm, I'm decent at it. Uh, but I've never done the scale-up phase. I've never had, you know, uh, a, a, an executive team uh, of, of 10 or 12 people reporting to me and, and like like managers of managers upon managers. I've never ran that type of business. I don't think I'd like to. Um, and so once I reach that point where I'm no longer having fun and I'm no longer good at it, then I'll probably, you know, accept one of these acquisition offers that we get all the time or, or – uh, or, or get a professional CEO, an executive level CEO that's done that before, that's good at that, that likes that to do it, to run it. And then I'll be chief of product or something. So I'm cognizant of that at all times. I haven't felt that yet. Like, okay, you know, maybe it's time for me to do something else because I'm still having fun doing it. But, but I'm always trying to kind of, kind of like scared uh, of that moment coming. So I try to be self-aware about it because, you know, the last thing I want to do is, is uh, not lead this, com- this, this company in, a, in, in the right direction and, and, and waste a decade of hard work. And now there's, you know, we, our team is 47 people. And so those people depend on our business for our livelihood. There's 32,000 contractors that depend on the platform to run their business. And there's 300,000 plus homeowners that, that depend on the platform. So I'm very aware that like I could screw up the magic really quick if I don't make smart decisions. So I, I try to like, if, if I see that moment coming, I'm <laughs> I'm going to, going to step down or sell the business. Uh, I want to clarify one thing because I guess this will help me to help to inform me of the the response to your answer just now. When you said that you crossed 30 million, is that money that has flowed through the platform or is that revenue for your company that you've booked? That's your company's money. So that's GMV that comes through the platform 
and we take a percentage of that depending on how much that the vendor's doing in business on the platform. So, uh, so, so uh, it's not like uh, some marketplaces measure GMV in terms of like potential uh, revenue that they're facilitating in the economy or something like that. I've seen some big marketplaces do that. This is actually revenue that's flown through the platform that we then disperse out to vendors and so on. Okay, because I was going to say, oh, but you said you've gone over 30 million this year. So you're at the scale of phase. But if you're actually calculating it not as gross revenue for your business, then obviously that number is lower. And so you wouldn't be at the scale up based on your own uh, concept yet. The number that scares me is is once we tip over nine figures. That that's when I start to think, uh, you know, I've never done this before uh, because you know I ran a ten million dollar landscaping business that in many ways was harder than this business, and uh, did a pretty good job of, of running that and, and got that business acquired, um, which doesn't happen very often in, in the landscaping industry. So you know I've kind of been there, done that, and that team was one hundred fifty. This team is is sub fifty. It's very, very, very different in the sense that it's knowledge workers, it's engineers, developers, designers, content creators. It's not like mechanics and crew leaders and equipment operators. So it's, so it's a very, very different business. But, but in many ways, I've, I've ran a bigger business that was harder to run than this one. So I haven't felt like out of my element yet. I think I, think I can take this business to nine figures and then it's going to be like a reset um, for me. And I, th- I think... If you as a founder are running a business properly, you should evolve into a totally new person every two or three years. You know, there's books you're reading, there's podcasts you're listening to, there's conferences you're going to, there's there's all sorts of like knowledge that you're acquiring, which a lot of times is just block and tackling for whatever stage of the game that you're in. And so maybe I might might grow into those into that role, but uh, but it's going to require a lot of personal development, a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of self-education, which this business always has. You know, I'm, I'm a totally different person today than I was five or 10 years ago, which I like that. I like that about about businesses and, and founding a company. You grow alongside the business and that's a lot of fun. But I think I think certain founders are are, uh, are more adept at, 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 at certain stages of the game. There's some founders that are really good at zero to one, like nothing – and like a product in the market working really well, but they're not good at, at running a, an eight figure or nine figure business. And so I think it's important to know like what your DNA is and, and know if, if, if you are leveling up alongside the business or not, and, and be like honest with yourself about that. That's something I always try to check. I think the biggest investment I've done in myself is starting the podcast. Cause I get to great, I get to talk to people like you where I basically get free mentorship by asking you about the things you're going through at a bigger size company. I get to think about then what it is that I need to do in order to make sure that I can be that person who can perform at that larger level, um, which is really awesome to be able to do. And I've, I've kind of learned over the last few years that I like being the person that advises other people much more than I do being the CEO but because I'm already in it, don't really have a choice. I have to keep going. So, but it, so I look at it one way is like, it's not exactly what I'd like to be doing, but it's a challenge in itself. And so screw it. Let's just go for the ride. But my team knows the vision. They can execute on it. They don't really need me. So I don't know. I'm kind of torn a little bit. You know, anytime I'm doing something I don't like to do 
and you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of moments in f- founding a business and getting a business going. You got to do stuff you don't like to do. I always try to figure out a, a way to eventually hand it off. Um, you know, and in the early days, it was it was PR. You know, I hated I hated reaching out to journalists and pitching them and begging them to write about our company. Um, so I like I took a year and tried to codify all the steps into. Okay, this is how I could package this up and hand it off to, to a professional PR person one day when I can afford one. And, it, and I mean, anything from around bookkeeping to, to uh, content creation to, to data analysis, like all these things, like doing them yourself for a while, even though you hate doing them, and then being able to codify it into like an operating procedure to where you can get somebody who's better at it than you to focus on it. You know, doing that over and over and over again is, is how I've built my team. Um, but I don't want to give the advice like, oh, just don't do the things you don't like to do. Do the things you're good at. Because I think particularly in like levels one, two, three of the game, you, you have to do the things that you don't like to do and that you're not good at and get pretty good at them until you can put somebody in that role. So I think it's like it, once you get moving and, you know, you get over eight figures, then you, you got this team doing things. And, and quite frankly, some days might be boring because you got a really good team around you and they're kicking ass and, and doing what they're supposed to be doing. And you're kind of just monitoring it. And, you know, all you got to do is just get a good night's sleep and put in like, like three really good hours making like maybe one good decision a day. Um, but in the early days, it's the inverse. It's like, no, you got to put in the 10 or 12 hours of grunt work to, to be able to build a scaffolding to, to build out that. Team. I'm curious how you discover bottlenecks. Yeah. A lot of times, um, when, when you are the founder, uh, you know, you, you, a lot of times what you do is just looking for log jams, looking for, for places like triaging almost. Like these are the two or three places where, where our bucket is leaking, which is kind of a bottleneck, or this is a ceiling for our growth. And it could be internal things like the team is, is, uh, is not communicating well, like the, the handoff between the developers and designers or, or like the, 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 uh, the inbound marketer, like something that I, I have dealt with, like we'll have like an inbound marketing strategy and they'll come up with all these specs for, for content that we're creating. And then, and then there's like a bottleneck there where, where the content writer doesn't really understand the vision and the developer like isn't hitting the mark. And it's like, these people aren't working together. So then as the founder, you got to get in there, roll up your sleeves and figure out what is going wrong. Where is the bottleneck and where is our, our process screwed up? And me as the founder, how can I help fix that? So I think like as the founder at different stages of the game, you're, you're kind of like zooming in and zooming out and trying to figure out where the log jams are, where the bottlenecks are. And then sometimes it's, it's outside the company. It's, it's like, uh, why aren't we growing? You know, well, uh, we, we, we've, we've, we've hit a bottleneck in, in terms of uh, SEO as our one channel is no, is topped out. So we got to look at developing other channels like, okay, well, now we got to start experimenting in other other channels, try to unlock another channel to bring in more customers. Or, or it could be that that uh, you know you, your product's not retaining people, and and so it's like people are using it once or twice, but they're not coming back. That's the biggest problem most startups face. And so then you, as the founder, you have to like zoom in and figure out like this is the biggest bottleneck our business faces right now. Somewhere we're pissing people off where they don't want to come back. Let's figure that out. That's the biggest bottleneck we have. So. As the founder, as CEO, like that's your job is triaging where the log jam is or where the bottleneck is, whether it's internally inside the company or outside, and focusing the team's firepower on that thing and then solve that and then move on to the next thing. 
over and over and over and over again. That's that's how, kind of how I would character, characterize the last 10 years for me, what, what my experience has been. What's a bottleneck that you discovered where, like you said, you were pissing off customers and you're just like, you weren't aware of it before. What, what was it that was making them angry and how did you fix it? Yeah, there's a lot of times when you're looking at retention of the business, you know, and, and trying to solve for that, people want to look at like, uh, let's send them the right message when they start to fall off and maybe, you know, the right push notification or the right SMS message or the right email when they just stop to use the product. And yeah, that stuff is low hanging fruit. We need to get that right. But most of the time, bad retention and people not coming back to use the product happens way further up the customer journey. Like you just flat out let them down. And it could be when you, when you pop open the Uber app and, and, uh, and it's the, the car's not, you know, not going to be there for 15 or 20 minutes. And then you wait 18 minutes and then they cancel last minute. That happened to me, uh, uh, a, a, a couple weeks ago. And I thought, man, this is a terrible product experience. Um, and so that is where retention, uh, is, is improved, is improving that customer experience. So for us, it's very similar to Uber in a way that, that, uh, we, we would focus on one thing and it's. The first time customer hires a contractor to come mow their yard on Thursday and on Thursday, that guy didn't show up and he didn't even show up on Friday and maybe he showed up on Saturday. Like that's a bad customer experience. And so, so a way that we would solve for that is, is we would introduce a, a reliability rating where, where we would score these guys on, do they show up on the day they're supposed to? And then that score is is always going up or down, and so now and now it's like the first thing they see in the app screen. It's not like buried into the settings or the menu somewhere. It's it's like prominently displayed on every screen. Your reliability rating is sixty one percent. You're not going to get all of the opportunities in your market. Uh, your chances of winning new business is going down. You need to improve that reliability rating, and then also putting that rating by. Uh, their prices when when a consumer is considering hiring them like hey you know you can hire this guy he might be five dollars cheaper but he only shows up 48 percent of the time this guy shows up 96 percent of the time he's a little more expensive you might want to consider him so that was just one way that you know by holding contractors accountable and then and then scoring them and then placing that in the in the purchasing decision path that we were able to improve the customer experience on i hired this guy he didn't show up on the day he was supposed to and it wasn't like Oh, they're pissed off. They're not coming back. Let's try to reel them back in. No, it's way further up the journey. And, uh, and that's usually how retention's improved. And it's really, really hard to improve retention. That's why it has such a meaningful uh, impact on the business. If you can, if you can, in most businesses, if you can improve retention one or two or 3%, it's like the same as increasing signups by hundred percent. And so that's a hard thing that we have to do over and over again, like figure out ways to improve the experience. So we then improve it retention. So when you discovered this problem, how long did it take you to figure out that a reliability score was the right choice? How did you test it? And how did you reinforce the behavior for the user to actually uh, take their own time to say, yes, this person showed up or no, they didn't. It took us a year to get that right. And it started with, okay, well, we at least need to know who's showing up on time or who isn't internally. So then we can then uh, meter and kind of throttle 
the invitations for them to win new business. So, so the guys that are not showing up 50% or less, we don't need to send them all these opportunities because they're just going to piss off more people. So that was step one. And then step two was, well, we didn't need to like give a, a, a feedback loop to these guys. And I say, guys, there's like, there's a lot of female led, uh, service providers on our platform. Matter of fact, they, they end up performing better and making more money than their male counterparts. So uh, I say these pros, uh, we need to give a feedback loop to these pros to help them improve because, because you have to understand like the analog to this is they're not measured. They're not held accountable. And that's why it sucks as a homeowner to do business with them because there's no accountability. And nobody teaches anybody how to run a small business. It's kind of one of those things you kind of learn through the school of hard knocks. So then we begin to understand, well, really, our platform is like a coach in, in, in your pocket for how to run a better landscaping company. And, and so we then begin to understand that, okay, we're taking on this role of not like this, this, this rating is punitive. It's more of like a, a, a coaching dynamic of you have to improve this to make more money, if you improve your reliability rating by 10%, you can make an extra $1,000 a month taking on that kind of role and, 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 and teaching these pros on how to run a, a better business, have happier customers, and win more business and keep more customers so they can make more money, so then the platform can make more money, where really our interests are aligned. So that took us a while to figure out. You know, we looked, we started off as a like a punitive type of dynamic, like, well, we should just expel all of the poor performing vendors. We still do, like, to a degree, but we really tried to help these these pros um, improve. And so, so that was maybe like phase two of the thing. And then, and then, and then, and then, like maybe phase three was okay. Well, we really our job as the platform is to surface all of this rich data about contractors for for homeowners and let them make the best hiring decision they want because maybe maybe they're just hiring this for like a rental property and they don't see this thing maybe once a year they don't really care if you show up every thursday so long as you show up sometime that week and they really are more price sensitive so they want that less reliable contractor uh but that's cheaper versus somebody that lives in a million dollar house they want to come home on Friday afternoon and it and it be nice and neat and clean for them. So so they are less price sensitive and more uh, and more uh, reliability sensitive. And so and so then we get came up with the idea. Well, we should surface these ratings front and center for for homeowners to make the best best choice that they can. So it became like this reinforcing thing, just one little thing, scoring these these pros on the day that they uh, how often do they show up on a the day they're supposed to became this thing that like touched every bit of the customer customer journey and, and really the, the, the vendor journey as well. And it took about a year to get right. And that was probably year five, you know, uh, that we came, we, we, uh, we stumbled upon this. So, and we're still figuring out ways to make it cheaper, better, faster, smoother, more reliable, more consistent, uh, make it to where pros can make more money. Uh, we're still improving that one thing, you know, the, to make the flywheel run smoother and faster. Um, it almost never ends. How have you changed yourself through the process of day one till today for this business? I know you said you had to learn how to code and you had to learn to do PR and all these things, but how have you changed yourself? In the early days, it is a lot of uh, hands-on, actual, practical, tangible skills. So it's like, let's just say you, you know, you want to 
build houses, you know, you, you learn how to lay a block. You learn how to do masonry. You learn how to frame a house, you know? So a lot of it is the actual like construction work. So picking up those skills, learning how to code, learning how to write software, even though I've never done anything like that before was something I had to do. And then learning like, you know, I spent six months and read every book I could read on copywriting uh, because I, I became to understand that that words on a screen matter a lot. Uh, they matter for clarity of what what the screen is and does and why a person's there. They, they matter to influence that person to take the action that's good for them and for the business's objectives. And so words on a screen matter a lot. So I spent like maybe even a year reading every book and taking online courses for copywriting, became a pretty decent copywriter. Um, and so a lot of it was practical skills. And then as time went on and, and I built out a team to kind of handle these things, then, then my job became more of like, uh, well, I mean, one, one hat I wear is one of a capital allocator. So, so as a founder, as you start to make a little bit of money, um, you, you the, the role shifts less from like chief blog post writer to capital allocator. So money comes in and it could just be a thousand dollars, but how do you put that money back out to work? And how do you reinvest that capital to, to then grow the business and accomplish the business's objectives? And that's really the hat I wear today the most. It's okay. We're making this amount of money per month. Um, I know that I, I need to make these five hires. How do I, how do I prioritize those in terms of impact in the business? And a lot of times, you know, running a, a company is less like chess and it's more like poker. You know, you, you don't have all of the information and you're kind of making your best bets uh, off of experience and off of skill and, and off of gut feeling. And, and uh, that's really kind of how it feels for me today. You know, I'm, I'm, Take, take, bringing money in, putting money back out to work. And that's the hardest job that I have. What's the single most important decision you've made for the business, whether it was positive or, or negative? The single most important decision uh, that, that I've made as kind of the, the leader of, of this company is to focus. Focus on just one use case. Focus on one vertical. Focus on making one thing as easy and delightful and magical as possible. I think a lot of new companies um, get distracted by bright, shiny object syndrome where they chase different opportunities. And when, when in fact the core competency of the business is not yet nailed. And so if there's one good decision my team and I have made is to not try to go into other verticals. It's not to try to, to go international too quick. It's not to try to, to uh, layer on other use cases Maybe we will one day, but uh, we still have so much more opportunity in terms of I, I just have a basic yard that I need mowed. I should be able to push a button. Somebody should come do it today for a fair price. And then as a contractor, like I have 300 customers, half of them are late paying me. I don't know which ones I'm making money on and which ones I'm not. My routes are, are a mess. Um, I'm just spinning my wheels. I'm not making any money, like solving all of those problems. You know, we can't solve those problems on both sides of the market without insane focus on just this one thing, like this one chore. And so that's one thing that we've gotten right. Whereas a lot of competitors who were, you know, we haven't raised any outside capital. So there's been about a billion dollars of capital crashed into the ground. Uh, 
really in this one industry in terms of venture back startups that have there've been better funded, better, you know, smarter teams, more experienced teams that have chased kind of this same opportunity who have failed because they didn't focus on on just the fundamentals of the one of the one problem they were trying to solve. So that's something that we got right. What's something you know you need to change but you haven't, whether that's personally or for the business? You know, something that that we need to change is just be more data driven. We're just now getting to the kind of precipice of we have enough data coming in that we can then leverage things like like uh, like maybe even AI uh, to to uh, to to better make better matches. You know, uh, you know, leveraging the next level of 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 using our data to make better decision making on how we spend money, how we put money back to work, how we make better inter- introductions, what types of features that that we ship. Um, it's still very much gut level. It's still very much um, qualitative, you know, uh, using customer feedback to to drive decision making and understanding what, what people are pissed off about or what people want and, and solving for that. But we're really kind of at level one of, OK, now we have enough data where we can let the data speak. And we can and we can then begin to invest in in, in machine learning and, and AI and things like that. So that's stuff that we should be doing more of, uh, and focusing more firepower on and plan to. But uh, it's just not it's just not something we're doing enough of yet. I just had two ideas for AI use cases for your platform. All right. One of them is route planning. Uh, obviously, you, you mentioned it earlier, you have a problem where it's difficult for the contractor to manage their daily schedule, or if they've got 50 inquiries this week, only an AI can really look at the map and go, okay, well, based on the difficulty of this one and this one and this one and where this person is in the city and this, okay, let's rearrange your schedule so that you're the most profitable, you waste the least amount of gas, you know, you can get there as quickly as possible, maybe even serve an extra client or two this day because of the fact that your route is optimized. Um, Exactly. And like, 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 that's a great idea. And like executing that is, is like the next level for us or saying, Hey, you know, you just quoted $45 for this homeowner. You actually have 10 other clients in that same, you know, zip code or route. You could do it $5 cheaper and still make uh, your margin and have a 90% more chance of winning it. Like being able to crunch the numbers on the fly and, and use machine learning to understand, okay, well, this guy actually has 12 more customers in this, in this zone than this guy does. Let's send him the invite first. We're not that good yet, <laughs> but, but we will be. So the other one was um, you were just talking about how you could maybe lower your price based on the zip code in order to get a higher chance of winning. I was thinking that it should be able to say, hey, you're you're trying to quote 38 but this person is willing to actually pay 52. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Right? So yeah. our job is to make these guys more money. And you you should you put know, your AI to work to figure out how to make them more money like that. That's the fastest way. Is oh, they're willing to pay more. You should charge them more. And that's something we learned in the early days. We thought we were de- delivering the cheapest solution to to this service. And price does matter to a lot a uh, big segment of the consumers that use the platform, but People really just want reliability. Uh, they're willing to pay a fair price so long as you actually show up and do a good job. So figuring out ways to to make these pros more money is really what we're here for. And so and so, yeah, we'll get there. 
It's just and, and the good news is the winds at our back. You know, there's more, there's better platforms and tooling and business intelligence software that helps companies like ours make better decisioning and 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 make better bets uh, than there were ten years ago when we first got started. So, so it's it's gonna happen. And it's cheaper now to make those bets. That's right. And these skills are are more pro- prolific than they were ten years ago. Like the the word. Uh, uh, data scientists didn't exist until like 2008 when somebody at Facebook invented it. So this stuff was very, very nascent, you know, a decade ago, but now it's becoming more, more prolific. So how do you handle distractions, whether that's in your daily schedule or as you said, shiny objects, how do you kind of just go, ah, oh, it sounds good, but like, no, I can't do that now. Yeah, one way I, I handle distractions is by laying out a series of, of like what I call tripwires. So it's like things that that I know that I'm going to stumble uh, over, and it causes me as like you know the, the the founder to be more accountable to what what it is we're trying to do. So an example of that would be I will bring in an outside contractor or freelancer or consultant to help us work on one very specific objective that that we know we have to improve on. So it could be like, how do we, how do we improve conversion from receiving free quotes to hiring somebody from, from X percent to, to Y percent and like, and having somebody who really is digging into the data and understanding, okay, well, if, if we, if we turn around five quotes faster, then we could, we could improve it. And, and so like, okay, we're going to meet about this and look at how it's doing uh, every, every Thursday at one o'clock. And so that's one thing we're working on. And I know that I have to, I have to like have a check-in with this person about everything that we're doing. And so then I know I need to be engaged about this thing. And so like this, having that tripwire for Thursday holds me accountable to, to, to run the SQL queries and to understand, to really dig into the data and understand, okay, actually this, this, this experiment that we're running is not working. And so we got to have to try this next uh, uh, hypothesis that, that, that we, that we came up with and, and brainstormed on. So like laying out, a series of, of tripwires for me uh, helps me kind of keep us on track as to like, okay, this is, this is what we're working on and nothing else. And then the other thing is, is really keeping it to less than two or three things at once. You know, we, you know, we've always been kind of constrained by, by capital because we're self-funded. And so when you're self-funded and you're only, you're only uh, uh, growing the business off of its own revenues, it kind of, it's kind of this forcing function to keep you constrained. And uh, to focus on like one or two things, usually that are in the customer's benefit because you need the customer to be happier because you need to grow revenue. And so it's kind of this reinforcing thing. In many ways, it's a lot harder to grow a business off of its own revenues. It's a lot slower. It's, 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 it feels like a more of a slog, but it helps keep us course corrected. And so that's another way we've, we've managed to not get the like false to come to the bright, shiny object syndrome and really focus on the hard problems of why our customers not happy or how do we make customers even happier uh, because we don't, we don't have all this money sitting around in the bank. We have to grow revenue in order to, to grow the team and do the things we want to do. So those two things, as simple as they sound, have, have helped, uh, helped us stay focused over the last 10 years. It's a, a huge point that I've had to learn and you mentioned it twice now, which is there's so many startups that fail because they have too much money available and they don't know how to spend it. And so they spend it in too many different places or they just overspend because they don't know. And I, 
I love how you've bootstrapped your business. I've talked to so many founders that have bootstrapped their business. And the more I talk to people like you, the more I don't like VC funded startups, the more I want to have a bootstrap to profit business because yes, it's difficult, but you either make cash or you die. It's a very different model. It's far more cutthroat and it's more exciting because you're, you're not focused on how much is my company worth and how much have I raised? It's how much have I generated and am I satisfying my customer? Yeah, it really does crystallize your thinking. Um, you know, I'm not anti-raising capital, but I do think it's a bad bet for most founders, particularly first-time founders. So, so maybe, you know, if you've started a, a, a SaaS company or, or some sort of tech-enabled tech product, got it to a million in revenue, and then maybe you sold it. Um, and now on your second one, you want to swing for the fences and move really fast. And you really kind of have the, the scars and the muscle memory around, around how to bring in capital and put it back to work. Maybe that's a good bet. Um, but for most first-time founders, I think it's a bad bet because it can paper over a lot of the, the problems of are customers happy? Do they like the product you're bringing to market? Um, uh, do they really even care enough to use it a second time? And because you've got all this money, you can do all these other things rather than getting out from behind the laptop and going and sitting in a Starbucks and talking to your first five or 10 or hundred customers, which in a bootstrap startup, you have to, because you need them to keep spending money on whatever crappy thing you've built In a venture back startup. You don't have to, because you have 12 months of runway and like, you can do all these other things where you can pay somebody else to do it. And then then it's like a game of telephone. You don't really know what's going on. And so, and so, you know, it's like, well, then why doesn't everybody bootstrap? Well, the reality is, is, you know, like there's some businesses you can't like, you know, three, four years ago when everybody was building scooter companies, that was a business that required a ton of capital and, and, and it, to even play that game. So if you wanted to build a scooter company, you could not, you could not bootstrap it. Um, but the reality is most businesses you can. And, and if it's one that, that only, is that can be done by raising capital, then then maybe you should go get a single under your belt or a double or a triple and then go do the big uh, venture back. What is something you're currently learning and how are you applying it? I'm always learning about the weird thing of marketplace dynamics. So, so what, you know, like, like I mentioned earlier, building a marketplace is not like a construction worker. It's like a gardener and you know, you'll do, you'll do one thing over here and then, and then like the results of it won't show up for three months. And so really understanding, okay, how do we, how do we further grow the, the marketplace? How do we get more penetration in markets that we don't have penetration? How do we make people happier on both sides of the transaction? Like the delicate balance, the orchestration that goes into that is something that I'm always learning on. I, I just, I just read a book called uh, the cold start, the cold start, uh, problem by Andrew Chen. It's a really good book uh, uh, about marketplaces from from the likes of Airbnb to Tinder to eBay to uh, you know Amazon. Like all these marketplaces, that this guy you know really takes a deep dive and, and, and talks about how they got over the cold start problem, how they think about ways to deploy capital in the marketplace to grow it. And it's an enigma. I mean, it you know it really really and we're really kind of in the early days of understanding tech enabled marketplaces and what makes them tick. So that's something I'm still, still learning, still, still working on, even though I'm a decade in and, 
few hundred thousand people using our product, I'm still learning on, on what makes uh, a well-run marketplace tick. What's the most important thing you think anyone running a company today should know? I think, you know, it depends on what stage of the game you're in. I, but I think there's, but there is one thing that, that always makes sense to me um, is that you're always going to be doing three things at once if you're running a company, no matter what stage of the game you're in. Uh, so you're going to be doing three things. You're going to be working in the business, so showing up to the office, uh, running the the hands-on, uh, the, the, the the all hands stand up, uh, you know, doing the check-ins, um, making sure that 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 customers are happy. Maybe in the early days, doing your own customer support. Um, you know, you're working in the business. The second thing is, is you're working on the business. You know, you're developing the systems, processes, the routines. The uh, the strategy you're 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 trying to uh, look at what our competitors are doing. You're talking to customers and trying to develop the next set of features. You're working on the business, and then the third thing is is you're working on yourself. That's one thing that doesn't get talked about a lot is that you aren't born out you know with knowing the things you need to know to pilot and run this company at whatever stage of the game you're at. So you are learning. Things like like in the early days, you're learning things like basic bookkeeping, uh, basic accounting. You're learning like I like I mentioned earlier, copywriting. You're learning. Maybe you have to learn how to write code. Maybe you have to learn what uh, good product design looks like. Um, so you are working on yourself. You you are leveling up for the skills that you have to to have to to get to the next level. I think if you know you're starting a company and or building a company, you know you're. For example, your car should run on two things, gasoline and and an audiobook. <laughs> like it should you should not be in the car without listening to an audiobook. Um, you know, maybe you walk on the treadmill for an hour a day and listen to a podcast that's very hands-on and tactical about what it is you're doing. You know, like like yeah, everybody loves to listen to like a Joe Rogan, and sure that stuff's interesting, but is Joe Rogan talking about the long tail of SEO strategy that you need to learn to, to get this marketplace going. Uh, you know, I'm speaking from, from, from experience or, or there's a product design podcast you should probably be listening to, or, or there, there is, there's some sort of like specific hands-on skill set that you need to be acquiring to, to get to the next level. So no matter what, what level you're on, you're doing those three things in the business, on the business and on yourself. So that's, that's one thing that I've learned and, and one thing that I'll share. I'm glad you talked about the third part because as you said, I barely hear people talking about that. Uh, so thank you for that. How can people follow up with you? Yeah. Anybody listening to this uh, that wants to work on your business and not mow your own yard, <laughs> just download GreenPal in the app store or play store or go to greenpal.com. Uh, anybody wants to hit me up, uh, actually Instagram, best place to reach me, Brian M. Clayton. Just drop me a DM there. I'll hit you back. All right. Thank you very much, Brian. I appreciate it. It's always really fun talking with you.